Hello and welcome to season nine of the English Wine Diaries podcast. I hope you've had a great start to the year and are ready to get stuck into more stories from the world of English wine. I'm your host, Rebecca Pitcan, journalist and founder of The Southern Quarter, an online magazine all about English wine. Join me as I sit down with a special guest and talk all about their English wine journey. From sommeliers to vineyard owners, hoteliers and some rather familiar faces too. Discover how a love of wine, particularly that made on British soil, has helped shape their lives and careers. Welcome to the English Wine Diaries. The English Wine Diaries is kindly sponsored by Wickham's, the great British wine merchant. Did you know that while England has become renowned for growing the traditional champagne varieties of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, we also grow grapes such as Pinot Gris, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot and a whole other bunch you might not expect. Fancy a Muscat from Cornwall, a Gamay from Kent or perhaps a Chasselas from Sussex? Wickham's has a huge portfolio of English wines and has won awards for its collections. So, whether you're after one of Britain's well-known favourites or want to try something a little off-piste, check out wickhamwines.co.uk. And listeners of the English Wine Diaries get 10% off their first order by entering the code TEWD10 at checkout. That's TEWD10. Joining me on today's episode of the English Wine Diaries is wine educator and winemaker Jimmy Smith. Jimmy has worked in the wine industry for over 20 years. Having started his career in wine buying, he founded West London Wine School, one of the UK's leading wine, spirit and beer education facilities, in 2010. And in 2020, started online wine education tool Wine with Jimmy. The schools have won multiple awards over the years, including Consumer Educator of the Year at the International Wine Challenge in 2023. Over the last few years, Jimmy has turned his hand to winemaking, and together with business partner Bethany Patterson and fellow winemaker Sam Hill, set up Bear Green Winery in the Surrey Hills. The winery crafts small batch wines made of grapes sourced from exceptional vineyards within the south of England and focuses on natural yeast fermentation, minimal intervention, innovation and creativity. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am tickety-boo. Thank you so much for having me. So can we go all the way back? Tell me about growing up. Was there wine on the table? And how did you come to be have a career in wine? Wow, let's go all the way back. Yeah, it, it's um, it's an interesting starting point for me, actually, because I come from a family that was teetotal. Well, the parents were teetotal, so there was no alcohol, nothing, nothing religious, nothing to do with any kind of, you know, any kind of want or need. It was just purely that my parents didn't drink alcohol. You know, it, it would be a classic, probably a small glass of something once a year around Christmas time or something like that. So, um, but I had three elder brothers who were very much keen on alcohol, uh, <laughs> mainly mainly beers and spirits. And that's how I got sort of a segue into wine because uh, one of my elder brothers was working in a wine shop in my local town. Uh, he went off to university and I got to know the team there. And I started working there 
Um, I should probably be legal about this. At the age of 18, I started working there. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's how it began. And I did my WSET qualifications when I was 18. I passed my level three um, and then went up from there. I went to university uh, doing geology and geography. And that ties in quite nicely. And I came back, did my diploma and yeah, started um, getting into the wine industry in London. So did you do that degree knowing that you wanted to pursue a quick career in wine? <laughs> That's another really interesting question. My my parents are making them sound that they're not really right for me in some way, <laughs> shape or form because they were teetotal, but also they had um, a grand ambition for me to be a, an engineer in the Royal Navy. So they pushed me kind of convinced me when I was young, you know, when you're a child, you have no idea really what you want to do. And they were like, well, your eldest brother is really successful. So why don't you, um, why don't you follow in his footsteps? So they uh, convinced me to do things like physics and maths at uh, university, uh, sorry, at school. And I really didn't enjoy it, but um, I then went into Newcastle university doing uh, mechanical engineering and I was dreading it, absolutely dreading it. But on day two, so the day after the first night of freshers, uh, I I went to the geography department and said, look, I'm really keen to change. Uh, is it possible? And to my surprise, they were like, well, yes, uh, we do actually have an opening up in the uh, geography course. And I was like, OK. Um, and in my mind, my mind is sort of flooded with, well, what about the UCAS system? Have I, am I cheating the UCAS system? <laughs> And uh, and it happened. I had an interview, and in that interview with my um, to to be shooter, he asked me, you know, about my interests, and I said wine. He he was kind of a wine fanatic, and it all went from there. He said, "Yeah, well, I don't see why you can't come on board." So uh, I didn't get the grades to 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 go to Newcastle for geography, but I kind of slightly bypassed it. Um, my parents found out about three or four months later, and that was a an interesting visit from them but um needless to say it's all kind of water under the bridge now we're all best friends <laughs> and it's all worked itself out the stars aligned yeah 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 <laughs> exactly it's really you know when you have these conversations with people and you talk about those kind of seminal butterfly mo effect moments right where a decision is made and it absolutely changes the trajectory of your life and that that was that night out i had that first night out in newcastle met a load of friends who are friends for life and they one of them said to me said you should go and see if you can just get into the geography department and I was like really and I obviously had had I probably didn't say it like that I was probably slurring my words or something but <laughs> uh, but yeah so it, that's I always remember that it kind of changed everything for me otherwise I probably would have had a go at the Royal Navy and dropped out and you know floated around a bit but um yeah it all changed from that moment in time. And you finished university and did your diploma. Um, again, then, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do? Obviously, you, you, did you do your diploma because you were thinking, right, that's me, I'm going into wine, that's what I'm going to do? Or was it, I say just a bit of fun, anybody, I haven't yet done the diploma, but I understand <laughs> it's incredibly, I'm waiting until my kids are a little bit older, I think, and I can <laughs> manage it. But yeah, was that something that you did sort of, you know, for fun, hobby, or or was it actually, no, this is it now, I'm I'm headed for a career in wine? Well, at uh, at university when I was in Newcastle, I I was um, still keeping my wine studies up, remembering that I'd done my level three just before in my year out, 
and I um, I worked in a wine shop up there. Um, so I I kind of kept it going, mm. and it was actually the company that I'd worked for previously, which was Thresher Group, which owned Wine Rack. Um, so I was a part of that old old firm, <laughs> and yeah, so I, I continued to work for them. And then at the end of university, I kept in contact with some of the uh, sort of regional managers and and so on. And they were doing, um, they were opening new branches in London. So I moved to London straight after university. They paid for my diploma. So I, I did my diploma and I opened up a number of new shops with Oz Clark. Uh, so we went around opening these shops up and, and it started from there. And I started managing one of them in West London. But quickly, I, they sort of noted that I was quite good at talking about wine in front of people. And this is coming from somebody Back then, I was really nervous and anxious standing in front of people talking about anything else. Uh, but with wine, it was fine. So I became a tutor for the Thresher Group at the age of 20, I think it was 23, 24. Wow. Um, then they went bust, uh, which was one of the big sort of breakdowns because of the credit crunch, 2007. Uh, 2007, 2008, they went bust and I decided to set up my own wine school at that point um, with a bit of help because so I had no money and I had a bit of help from a friend who uh, <clears throat> on a, another this is actually this is a recurring theme I was having some beers again and he um, I, was, I said I, I really would love to get a bit of money to start a wine school uh, and I asked him in sort of indirect I was like you've, you've got a friend who's a venture capitalist would you put up a meeting uh, for me and he just turned around and went and he's one of my best friends still to this to, to this day he goes you don't need to ask him, ask me. And I was like, uh, can I have some money? <laughs> and, and he was like, of course. So it all started from there. And um, I set up West London Wine School, which was a the first franchise uh, in the first few franchises of the local wine school network. Um, and yeah, put my heart and soul into that school um, for 10 years, uh, pretty much leading it on my own. But then it grew and grew. So People would come into the fold, new tutors and marketing and administration. And my uh, my wife joined the fold as well. That's Bethany, who you mentioned. So she started to do the sort of strategic management of, of West London Wine School. Um, yeah. And then we grew the school up to the largest provider of WSCT in the UK outside of WSCT. And um, and yeah, we we set up the wine bar which is streatham wine house in 2016 uh because we lived in streatham for us we moved there and there was nowhere to drink wine in 2014-15 and we both said to each other um probably over some beers again it seems to be very frequent for me (laughs) we both said to each other uh if nobody if no one comes in here and sets up a wine bar on the UK's longest high street in Streatham, Streatham High Road, then we'll do it. And of course, no one did. And then <laughs> we set up the wine bar in 2016 uh, and then also had the opportunity to purchase South London Wine School. So that was around the same time. Uh, we also got married that year as well. Uh, wow, bought, a lot going and, on. And bought a house. Yeah, it, <laughs> was, uh, it was a big old year, 2016. Um, and actually, was that the year that we the Brexit happened as well, wasn't it? My God, that was a that was a that, that was, was a stonker. <laughs> that was it was all, all over the place that year. Um, yeah, and then uh, and then we move into sort of more modern times when um, I uh, we came to the lockdown. So we had the three businesses at that point: the two wine schools and the wine 
the wine bar, we had to, you know, the, the, the word is pivot, isn't it? Uh, mm. What happened? And it always reminds me of that Friends episode of, uh, of, Chan, of Chandler <laughs> and, and Russ with the sofa. Pivot, pivot! We had to, uh, we had to pivot our businesses so that the bar became a shop and the schools went online. Um, and the online was super successful because we were one of the first to start doing online education during that time. Then 67 Palmao did the bottling kits and we went, oh, well, we, we can have a go at that. And we still do that to this day, which is which is really great. So um, but one thing we noticed was that in 2020, so those early dark days of, of lockdown, that people were crying out for online education. So we were offering that in the UK with the wine school, but I started putting a few videos out on YouTube about sort of WSET preparation and people were really liking them. So our plan was to create a business, uh, an online educational portal to supplement our wine schools, but it, it's actually become its own mm. independent business called Wine with Jimmy. It has about 40,000 subscribers on YouTube and we have about 10, 11,000 around the world who are paid subscribers. And it's a portal that helps you with your studies for WSET all the way to diploma. Uh, so there's lots of written content and example questions, and then a lot of exclusive video content that I that I film. And you mentioned the diploma earlier that you've still got to do it. Um, I think we're now at, I filmed at just over a thousand videos for the diploma. Uh, and they're all about 10, 15, 20 minutes long to help people through all that content. Um, so the jump, is 200 videos that I filmed for level three to over a thousand for diplomas. That gives you an idea of the, <laughs> of the, yeah, the enormity, of the, 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 the kind of, you know, the big step. It's like the Richter scale, you know, it really goes up in, in intensity. So, so yeah. And then um, that became so successful when it's become our main business that it's given us the capital to um, think about something new. And that's where, Bear Green Winery came into play in 2022. So during COVID uh, lockdown, with all these new ideas going on, we just had our first uh, our first uh, baby. So a little baby boy. Uh, he was born two months before um, uh, COVID hit. Uh, so we decided that we needed space. We've got two dogs. We're going to obviously grow our family. We have a little girl now as well. So we moved out to Surrey. Um, we always were drawn around the sort of Dorking and Horsham area. And we found this beautiful place where I am uh, now. It's got a nice bit of land to it. And the plan was to move into it with our family, uh, use the agricultural land for a vineyard and use the buildings that we have here for, for a winery. So we've done most of that. We haven't planted the vineyard yet just because of life. Um, but it's forthcoming next year. But the winery we established in 2022, it's... Um, my wife and I, and then we've gone into joint partnership with Sam. Uh, Sam is Sam Hill. He's a, a, a wonderful friend of mine. He's uh, a tutor at the wine school. Uh, he's a lot of the brains behind Wine with Jimmy in terms of all the technical stuff. Uh, his trade is a, a research chemist and he studied at Plumpton College for winemaking. So we were having, once again, we're having some drinks. It was probably wine this time, though. We had some <laughs> drinks one night. Uh, he was here with his with his lovely wife. And um, we were like, oh, we really want to make wine together. We have very aligned principles in in wine styles. And mm. we, we talked in depth about it. And 
I said, look, we've got the land here. We've got the uh, we've got some stables that have never been used for horses, but they're it's a wonderful looking building. You'll see it on our on our website. And we were like, well, we can convert that to a winery. So we started very small in 2022 um, and have grown it uh, this year in, in 2023. So, yeah, that brings us up to to the winery. Up to the winery. And we'll Ooh. talk more about that in a second. What I want to do is go back ever so slightly sure. and talk about sort of your introduction to English wine, because obviously now you're making it you would have been drinking wine and selling wine and, and, and discovering new wines and from regions all over the world and then telling people about it. But when did you sort of discover English wine? When did it start to pique your interest in terms of how it could become something in your future? Uh, well, I think, I, I suppose there's a couple of moments. The initial moment would have been... Uh, this would have been probably early uh, 2011, 2012, maybe around that time when we start to see the emergence of, you know, Chapel Down and all those kind of names. And I, I'm, I, I, Hambledon, I think I visited as well. And I started to open my eyes up and that, and that's really because of, um, the wine school people were asking for it and you start to see some english wines in in supermarkets as well and uh, i couldn't give you an exact moment in time or the exact wine uh, i did forge and still have an excellent relationship with the guys at gusborne so mm -hmm. charlie holland i know he's jumped ship now but uh good friends with charlie uh, and james white who works there uh, and Laura as well. So I've always been quite close to them. I've always had their wines in my cellar. So that's been for 10 years, I should I should think now. Um, so started to really get into those wines, but I've never been a huge flag flyer ambassador for sparkling wine. I love mm. it. And if you give it to me, I'm going to enjoy it. But I'm not someone who goes out their way to go and study the masters of champagne, for example, I'd rather go and do the masters of Burgundy and, and Rioja and whatever. Um, so it's not something that I continuously drink. Um, so the market, of course, the, uh, the industry suddenly started to boom with all this sparkling wine. Of course we produce today, you know, two thirds, 70% and it starts to dominate and yes, it's great. And we're trying these wonderful examples, but I think it was a few wines coming out of 2015 that I tried, um, mostly sort of whites, certainly Chardonnay from the likes of Gusborne, uh, and then the 2018 vintage for Reds that made me really, really think long and hard about still wine production in mm. England and the, the possibility of really great wines um, coming from our more Germanic-influenced background with the likes of, you know, Bacchus and Riechensteiner and all those, but also the Chardonnays and Pinots that started to get planted quite significantly. So it was it was a couple of really strong vintages, the 2015, the 2018, and of course then coming into recent times, 2020 as well, the real, real strong examples of Pinot Noir. Uh, and that's what made me realise, along with Sam, that, you know, we don't want to make sparkling wine. We might do down the line, but there is real good potential for, for still wine. Uh, in England. And that's where the whole point of our clonal project has um, come to play. But I don't know if you want to talk about that now or. Yeah, no, we can. Let's, yeah, yeah, continue. 
So you're concentrating on two different sort of um, ranges of wine. And there's one that is kind of, I would say, is kind of a bit more of a serious side to it. And then another range where you can kind of have a bit more fun with it. So do you want to talk us through in your own words? Yeah. So, yeah, for want of a better word, not so serious. We, we, I mean, it's geeky. Let's call it geeky (laughs) or or nerdy. (laughs) We have we have that range, which is called our clonal range. Um, so that is where we put a lot of invested, a lot of time and research. And then our second range is our fun range where we have a lot of, um, uh, a lot of experimentation we find there from all of my travels with, with wine education. I travel constantly and I'm talking constantly to winemakers at trade shows, at, at the wineries, you know, and I know a lot of people around the world now. So I, I feed off their energy and their creativity and their innovation and come up with these new ideas. Um, there might be some concepts that a lot of people are already quite used to, things like skin contact, for example. Uh, but there are others, like we're doing for our Pinot Noir, that we're integrating to really sort of change things up. We don't make wine specifically to a template. We utilize proper practice but we're very much willing to give ourselves the options to create something different and unique so that's that's the fun range we we call it the fun range because i was having a conversation with one of my other tutors um and we hadn't really come up with a name for that range and i just said yeah it's just the fun stuff we make and he goes just call it the fun range and i went ah yeah that sounds great so we have the fun range uh, which focuses for us right now on bacchus pinot gris and Pinot Blanc. And then we have our geeky, nerdy range, which we call our clonal range, which is on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Um, so that clonal range, I've got a lot of interest in clones. Um, don't get me, get me wrong, it's not the be-all and end-all for what makes wine quality, but I'm really interested how it's a, a, an important factor in shaping the style and quality mm. of wine. So I've been doing a lot of research on the older vines and certainly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir um, with English winemaking, taking inspiration from people like Richard Kershaw, who's the master of wine down in uh, the first master of wine down in South Africa. Uh, he makes wine in Elgin uh, and he he bottles by clone as well. And he's done a lot of seminars, um, a lot of public speaking about it. His research paper, I think, for his MW was on clones. So. I took that inspiration. I was like, it's a fascinating concept because clones are developed over hundreds of years and over millennia. Uh, and, you know, they are unique, sometimes minute mutations, which change each genetically identical grape variety, right? So you have hundreds of Chardonnays and you have hundreds of Pinot Noir. And that really fascinates me because, yes, we can talk about how geology, climate, weather, aspect, the environment and human influence can impact the style, but clones is another one of those which can impact it. Because you can see from different clones, different size of berries, different thickness of skins, different resistant properties, and that's really what fascinates us. So the the model that we came up with uh, and how we've approached a number of vineyards, because we buy all of our fruit currently, the model is that sparkling wine clones versus still wine clones there is crossover but they are different and sparkling wine clones generally you want that high acidity and you want a fairly neutral base wine to then put it through the traditional method to go through yeast autolysis and so on 
Whereas still wine clones, you want clones that are going to give you more structure, not necessarily the highest acidities because we have bucket loads of that in England, of course, Mm. but more body, more structure, more fruit ripeness. And that's what we do. So we, we actually go to a lot of vineyards who we're working closely with and we say, look, this is the model we come up with. We will take some of the fruit. This is if they don't make still, by the way. Yeah. We will take some of the fruit, which actually might be too uh, powerful, too structured for making a sparkling wine. So we take that out of your production. Uh, we buy that fruit from you. And as a result, they have the possibility of making an even better sparkling wine because they are identifying with our help the parts of their vineyards which make great still wine but not necessarily sparkling so so we work with quite a few we work with five vineyards um with one of them uh, making sparkling wine but they supply most of our fruit and we um we work with them super closely in the vineyard helping of course uh, with spraying regimes with um green harvesting uh, but also identifying the plots that we take out of their vineyards because it makes brilliant still wine. So it's a really, really good model, which we are really looking to expand in the future, approaching more and more vineyards to sort of work with them because it's a win-win. Yeah. We, we we get brilliant fruit for our still wine and they have the potential to make even better sparkling wine. Uh, so that that's the clonal range. Um we are currently working with three clones of Chardonnay. This is only our second vintage just happened. So three clones of Chardonnay and two clones of Pinot Noir. But we are certainly looking to expand that to, to I don't know, we'll, we'll see. We don't have uh, a huge amount of space. <laughs> and for this idea, you need a vat for every clone, right? So it's a little bit more complex, but that's the clonal side of it. Um, our Chardonnay and Pinot from 2023 are currently um, maturing now. So the Chardonnays have finished their ferments. They're on their gross leaves in, in vat, a portion of it in barrel. The Pinot Noirs are, are the same. Um, they're ready to go through mallow as it warms up. And we are tasting super differences between those, even from the same sites, uh, when we've got different clones from different sites. So We're really excited about that because we will independently bottle those wines. So we'll have Chardonnay 121 clone, Chardonnay 95 clone, and Chardonnay 96. Uh, So you can then purchase those, taste through those to understand the differences. And then we'll we'll use our skills for blending as well to make uh, almost like a house blend for a Chardonnay. Yeah. Um, So that's our clonal. Wow. It's fascinating. Going to the 2022 vintage, though, and those are the wines that you have available at the moment for people to purchase. And you very kindly sent me a bottle of your um, Pinot Blanc, uh, which I have here and I have already tried it. But can you talk us through the sort of um, style, why you decided to go with Pinot Blanc? um, And yeah, just while we sort of do a, a little sort of tasting, really. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so that brings me, so that was the clonal range. Then it brings me to the fun range uh, of which we are experimenting a lot with. And in the first year, as you just mentioned, 2022, we only made two wines. So we made one fun wine, which is the one you've got in your glass. And then we made uh, one clonal wine, which is our um, clone 95. And in fact, I forgot to mention that vineyard. We, we work with a small vineyard just north of Brighton as well. Uh, in Falmer on the south facing chalk swords about 100 meters uh, and that's where we get um, uh, a clone of 95 clone Chardonnay which made 
our first ever Chardonnay, that's the 2022, and we get some Pinot Noir from there, but the Pinot Noir makes a rosé for us uh, from that area. So, uh, so yes, we make the fun range. Uh, the first wine you've got in your glass is the Triple A Pinot Blanc. So the Triple A is fruit that we sourced from Crouch Valley, from right off the River Crouch, uh, from the Fleming Vineyard. Uh, and we, um, we, what we wanted to do with this wine is not just make another English white wine. Um, we love English white wine, but we wanted to do something a little bit different from drawing from the influences that both Sam and I had had. So Sam, who I make the wine with, has had uh, two harvests in Alsace. And Alsace is certainly one of my favorite places in the world. Mm. And then Alto Adige is where I visit quite frequently and have helped harvest there as well. So we both have influences from Alsace and Alto Adige. So what are those influences? Those influences are making Pinot Blanc in that really saline way, mm. which is going to be quite natural coming from England because we have such high acidities. But then also um, not just treating it as a spring release wine, maturing it throughout the year on lees to give it body and texture. So that's what we've done with this wine. It, it was racked off its gross lees, but then um, uh, batonaged and fine lees aged for about sort of 10 months, roughly 10 months, um, which get, gives it body. So it smells very green and yeah. fresh and salty um, and saline. And it smells like it's going to be just a quite a delicate light wine. But when you come to taste it, there is roundness and softness, which comes from that year on uh, on the fine leaves, giving it that, that little bit of texture. Uh, so that, that is our first sort of, uh, sort of attempt at our fun range. We're really pleased with it. And the name comes from those influences. So it says AAA, the triple A means Alsace, Alto, Adige. Uh, so it is a kind of a homage to our our influences for what kind of style we're making. And the colour splash you see on the front of it is uh, the kind of fruits and florals that you'd expect to get in that wine. And the labels are designed by a student of ours who's an excellent uh, wine label designer, um, a guy called Miguel, and he's uh, come up with that beautiful design that you that you see on that label. So. So hopefully you're enjoying it there. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely. All those words you were saying, it's, I mean, I th it has got a, a, a lively nose to it, though. It's not, you know, when you sort of say it looks, when you look at it, you think, OK, yeah, traditional kind of English still, it's going to. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's got a really lovely, lively nose, really fresh, lots of citrus, bit of apple. Um, I'm get, I get a little bit of pear as well, sort of tiny yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a lovely, it's a nice level of acidity, but the, it's the um, minerality, the salinity that I kind of you get. But it's not, it, as you say, it's got the the backup, I was like, the backbone yeah. behind it. Yeah. Um, and, and, that, and that's exactly what we wanted. We wanted to give a wine that has the typicity of an English white. It's going to have that that acidic freshness and the acidity is around six grams per litre in this. And then we wanted to give it a slightly counterbalance. Now, we um, in our first year of making wine, everything is very new. And we're very, Sam and I are very keen on experimenting with things like skin contact, for example. Mm. But in this first year, we only had 500 litres of this Pinot Blanc. 
So we had very small amounts and we didn't have the the space, the vats uh, to do a bit of experiments with it. So we've made um, a traditional sort of English white, but we wanted to do the spin of an alpine edge to it, which gives it that kind of roundness. Uh, so that's our step. But we quickly realized that actually as that wine was aging, we were like, we want to give ourselves the opportunity to have options to craft a wine that we really, really, really love to do. And that's what we've done going into the 2023 vintage with the Bacchus and with the Pinot Gris that we um, have uh, sourced from places like Totten, like Pease Lake uh, and so on. So what we did this time is we we got a lot more, you know, we've we've got two full vats of Bacchus, we've got a full vat of uh, of Pinot Gris, so that's a total of about 3,000 uh, litres. And we we also did a small pressing of both of those on skins. So we did a small vat of skins of Pinot Gris and Bacchus for seven days because neither samurai are keen on putting it in wood for texture. We're not keen on putting either of those grapes through malolactic because um, we want to protect the kind of backbone of the identity of each grape. So where are we going to gain body from? Two places, uh, skin contact with a small proportion of fruit uh, and then blending. So what we have come up with is our main white, which will be released in about sort of six to eight weeks, uh, is a Pinot Gris Bacchus blend. Uh, so we've blended those two together. We've tasted quite a few, really like what the guys are doing down at Kinsbrook uh, with, with Joe, really interesting blends around similar sort of uh, grape mix. But also mm. what we've done is into that blend added about 10% of skin contact Pinot Gris, which gives us weight, texture, body, all those names, mm. um, without using oak or lees contact or mallow. So we have got this beautiful wine with a bit of body behind it, um, a little bit changed sort of fruit and flavor because you get a little bit more spice that comes through, but the wine tastes fantastic. Um, and it's our first time making, personally us, making skin contact as well. So the two individual vats of skin contact of Bacchus and Pinot Gris, those two small vats of skin contact of each of those grapes, yes, we're blending small proportions of those into um, our other, what we call our house whites, I suppose. Um, but we've tasted them and we love them independently as wines. Okay. So full-on skin contact Pinot Gris for seven days, full-on skin contact Bacchus. Uh, we did a blending day here last week with a lot of my team across my businesses. So a lot of educators, um, many of those guys have had experience in, in sort of winemaking and harvest and so on. And of course, they taste wine for a living. So they all came down here. There was a group of 12 of us, and we just listened to everybody as they talked through all of our wines straight from VAT. Um, and then we discussed, you know, what people thought of them. We had some consumers actually, and we had some retailers in that group and we wanted to hear everybody's opinions. And we had some wonderful validation because life is about validation, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't talk about it directly, but, but it's, you're trying something new or you're trying something and, you, and, and you're putting your a brand behind it and you're putting your, your passion behind it. And it's nice to hear that people were just loving the wine. So, so we're very confident in that and loving the skin contact Pinot Gris. And we even have people loving the skin contact Bacchus. So 
there's a debate now whether we we make a we're definitely making a skin contact pinot gris on its own yeah um that's tasting just out of this world the bacchus um the difficulty with bacchus is neither sam or i sam or i would be necessarily massive flag flyers for bacchus yeah okay you know yeah yeah i mean like yeah it's it's a it's a good workhorse grape variety behind still wines in England. It gives England a point of difference, you know. It's uh, it delivers a lot of very sort of aromatic character for what it is, and you know, and it's it's a really interesting grape. But I wouldn't necessarily say most Bacchus I can sit there and drink a bottle of it. For me, it's a one glass wine and not a bottle wine, and and I like wine by the bottle, not by the glass. So. <laughs> So you I know, hear you there too. <laughs> <laughs> so with uh, with Bacchus, um, we we were very keen. If we were going to take it on, and we got offered some Bacchus, Sam and I were keen to do it in a different way, mm. which we would be proud to to serve to people. And I, you know, you'll get this from anybody who's making wine, of course. But but we we said, look, we're, we're not going to put it in barrel. Quite a few people in the UK put Bacchus in barrel or put it through Lee's contact. We're not doing any of that. We've got skin contact. And the plan was to use that proportion of skin contact, which is about 20% of the volume of the Bacchus we have, and blend it fully in to give it that body. But we've now got a debate because some of the people on that focus blending day that we did were absolutely loving the standalone skin contact Bacchus on its own. And one of them is a good friend of mine who's a retailer, owns a number of wine shops. And he said, Jimmy, if you bottle that up, I'll buy most of it off. You know, I was just like, don't tell me that. That's another, <laughs> that's another thing I've got to think about. So um, we've got some, uh, we've got some decisions. To, we've pretty much made the decisions, but there are decisions to be made. So we're really happy of how our Bacchus is coming out. It's going to have the aromatic that you expect from Bacchus, but have much, it's not as intense. It's a little bit more muted which is very important for Sam and I. Um, and then the body on it's going to be weighted because it has that 20% skin skins uh, behind it. So we're very keen on that. That's coming out. That's going to be really fun wine. Uh, the Bacchus, we've got the Pinot Gris Bacchus blend, which has a proportion of Pinot Gris skins in it as well. Really, really delighted about how that's coming out. Then the Pinot Gris full-on skin contact on its own. Um, and then we have some rosés as well, which is part of the fun range too. Um, so you'll notice there's quite a lot of wines coming out in spring. <laughs> there's yeah. going to be yeah, <laughs> two wines in the first year and our spring release, will there'll be another seven. Uh, and then in autumn will be when our Chardonnays and Pinots come out and that there'll be another seven, I think, uh, coming out then. But the rosé, rosé, we were kind of forced into it. We bought some fruit from a vineyard that we... Uh, bought the previous year, um, really good quality in 2022. But the Pinot Noir came in um, slightly underripe, you know, a bit translucent. And we tasted a lot of the fruit. And Sam and I just looked at each other and said, "We can't make Pinot from this, but let's try and make a rosé." Yeah. Um, we've never had the desire to make a rosé. It's not on our immediate plan. But as a winemaker, you've got to be. Um, you've got to be reactive and you've got to deal with your your materials. You've got to make commercial decisions, don't you? Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. And we we were like, Look, let's make a rosé, but let's, let's, let's give ourselves options. And you, you'll notice I, I keep saying this because we're not just fermenting Bacchus and sticking it in a stainless steel vat and dealing with all that throughout the year, right? And, and the, 
what we're doing is making different vats, some of it skin contact and so on. Some of some of our Chardonnay's in barrel, some's not. And then what we're able to do is taste that and come up with the, the perfect wine. Uh, it's about giving yourself the option. Not many people have this possibility because they don't have the amount of vats we have. We're a second year winery and we've got 14 vats. You know, we've got we've got quite a few and it's going to only expand and it gives ourselves the option. And we do that with the rosé. So the, the rosé for me, um, so it's Pinot Noir. It was supposedly destined to make a red for us, but it came in a little bit translucent and we, we were like, okay, we're going to make a rosé, um, but it's Pinot Noir. And the reason why not many people make a rosé out of Pinot Noir is because commercially it doesn't make sense because mm -hmm. if you market a red wine from Pinot Noir, you, you charge more. Uh, if you make a rosé, of course, you you have to charge less. Um, and people, you know, you might not sell it. And that, that's a big issue. But I went to Oregon in 2022, in summer 2022, and they actually are probably, along with Burgundy, probably the country in the world that makes quite a significant amount, amount of rosé out of Pinot Noir. Okay. And, and I was tasting Pinot Noir rosé after Pinot Noir rosé from all across the Willamette Valley. And I was like, wow, this is really lovely. And they're, they're taking a bit of a hit to make this, this, this rosé. But that gave me confidence, you know, coming into winemaking with some Pinot Noir. I was like, if I'm going to make a rosé in England out, out of a black grape, I'm happy that I'm making it from Pinot Noir. So what we've done is we've made three, three types of Pinot Noir to give ourselves the options. One thing I was going to ask is you talk a lot about you and Sam being very aligned. Um, have there been any sort of points of difference or, or perhaps from a wider point, the sort of challenges that you faced over the last few years? Uh, I mean, we, I'm a strong character. I'm very, I'm very talkative and Sam's a bit more of a reserved character. So in terms of how we interact, there's definitely like roles in, in it. There's the, there's the, my role and his role. Um, but we interact so well and, and his through winemaking and through teaching that he does, his confidence with wine is just sky high. He's fantastic at what he does. And I suppose I talk a lot, <laughs> you know, he, he is, the, he has chemistry background. So he's scientifically so in tune with what's going on. Whereas I'm probably more the romantic and the emotive. I understand it all and I, I do it all, but um, I travel a lot. I speak to a lot of winemakers. In fact, there's a little funny thing that Sam always says that he knows when I'm traveling, if he's forgotten, he'll know because my phone will go, his phone will go off. And then he'll suddenly remember that I'm somewhere. He goes, Jimmy, where are you? And I'm like, South Africa. And he goes, tell me what you've learned and what we're going to be doing. <laughs> and then it might be, you know, like with um, we, with our Pinot Noir, we um, I learned a really interesting technique of drying the stems. Um, so they there's a great producer out in South Africa, good friend of mine. And he, um, he, I, he told me, so he makes Sanso, this, really gorgeous Sanso. And as you probably know, with Sanso, Sanso is normally very light, delicate, mm. but he got great, lovely structure, fine, delicate, grainy structure. And I was just like, how the hell do you get that in Sanso? Did you, what are you blending into this? He goes, I'm not blending anything. What he does is de-stem it all, about 20% of the stems, he then dries in the sun for about a day. And then he reintroduces those back into the ferment to add a finely grain texture from those stems. 
So that's what we've adopted here for our Pinot. We we can't do it in the sun in October. Generally, it's not that strong. So what we do is we uh, de-stem our Pinot. We take about 5% and we dry those stems in the oven. So we pre-lignify them. So we lignify, they turn them green to brown. We keep tasting them. And when they turn from being astringent to this fine grainy tannin, we introduce them back into the vat. And that's where we get a little bit of structure uh, into our lovely little grainy structure into our Pinot. Um, you know, we're not, we're not scared about those sort of things. And it comes from our relationship, right? Mm. Um, the, uh, the two vats of Pinot we have, we have a triple, uh, seven and a one, one, four. And we were just a little bit anxious that the one, one, four was a little bit too delicate and we could just do with a bit more body. And I turned to him and I said, well, why not try a bit of Repasso? And, he was like, uh, and what I meant by that is take a little bit of the skins out of the triple seven. They're both fermenting, by the way, and add them to the one one four because the triple seven has a lot of structure, more tannic coming, and much more color coming from its skins. And um, Sam's mind, you can see it working, and he goes, "Yeah, that, that's you know." He's going through the science. He goes, "Yeah, this is fine." So we we introduced a few of the stems and uh, sorry, some of the skins into the one one four. So it's like a little bit of a repasso method just to give a little bit more body behind it, which we were very keen on. So, so those kind of things, we, you know, I learned a lot from the world of wine and he puts it to the practice and we, we introduce those kind of techniques. It's the same with the Chardonnay and gross leaves differences. Um, so we're very much aligned. We love skin contact. Um, we've worked a lot with different variations of skin contact. Uh, different vessels. We have clay pot here, uh, which is a claver that we got from Genoa in, in Italy, um, which we're going to be doing some of our Chardonnay in. So we're 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 very aligned on those kind of principles. Um, but there are things that we we talk about frequently and we have discussions about. Um, certainly like the rose, when we were blending those roses, Sam was purely focused on the last one in barrel for three days because it's gorgeous. Mm. Uh, but I was like, that's fine for you and me and a small proportion of other people, but there's going to be a wider market that that need it. And it's those kind of conversations that make when there's two of you making wine together are so important because you're able to ground your own bias or your, your own, <laughs> when you're like, uh, you can get in your own head, right. And just make wine for yourself. Um, but you need to sort of put a little bit of a spin on that because uh, if you're making volume, like we are starting to make now, we're going to need to sell that volume, right? And it's it's if you're just making wine for your own palate, it's not always going to work, is it? So, so I'd say we align most of the time, but um, but there are definitely discussions that we have quite quite frequently. We do a few quick fire questions. The wine that has surprised you the most? I'd say it would be it would be Georgian. Georgian wine, uh, because it changed my perception of, of orange and skin contact wine and, and really maybe think about tradition, you know, and old school winemaking techniques, clay pots, things like that. So it it will be that. Favorite food and wine combo. Um, favorite food and wine combo. Do you know what, at the minute, uh, and I did this last night, um, a proper English hot dog. Mm. Right. But with with American mustard. And by the way, my wife, Bethany, who I've mentioned a couple of times, she's American. So uh, we often have the, the the raging debate between beef versus pork, hot dogs <laughs> and so on. 
but uh, a proper British pork sort of Bramley apple sausage nice. uh, with um, with an orange wine. Like a I, last night, I had it with a, a Rebula from Slovenia, mm. and that kind of appley note and the pork character with the mustard goes really well with um, with with orange skin contact wine. But proper one month skin contact wine as well. Favorite wine memory uh, is. One of the funniest is, uh, and definitely one of my favorite, is how we used, uh, this is a friend of mine who I used to go traveling a lot with, a guy called Matt Wicksteed. He's currently my chief wine buyer across my businesses. Um, We were traveling in my vintage Volkswagen camper van. So we have a 1971 Volkswagen camper van called Jeff. uh, (laughs) And we were in Burgundy near Merceau, it was absolutely hammering it down and we the sat nav it was an old tom tom if you can remember that so this is yep. kind of like <laughs> like 2008 2009 and uh the tom tom was not great it took us through the coat door we were going through the this the bit where it was a, a, a dirt road with two vineyards uh, and it was getting really boggy and camper vans are not great in those conditions. So we had to do a, a, a kind of a 50 point turn to get the car or the van around. But as we were doing that, we started sliding down the slope. So my friend Matt had to get out of the camper van, hold up the camper van whilst I had it in reverse, but it wasn't working. We were slowly, like every sort of five minutes, an inch moving down and it was looking perilous. But we just been to champagne, had loads of champagne in the back. So I decided, I was like, I got an idea. I emptied all of those whilst I, I put like a heavy bag on the reverse one, and Matt is holding it. It's still hammering it down. Crikey. And we opened. I opened up all the boxes of champagne, used the cardboard as tracks behind the wheels. Yeah. And you know what? It bloody worked. We, rever- <laughs> we reversed up uh, and then we parked there. And we decided to open a bottle of those, one of the boxes of champagne. Uh, and we sat there in the rain drenched drinking champagne uh, overlooking Merceau. Oh, <laughs> That's one of my funnest. What was the champagne? Champagne, um, I, do you know what? I can't remember. Um, I don't think it was about the champagne. No. It was about the fact that we I think we just dodged a bullet. Final question, Jimmy. If yeah. there was one wine that you couldn't live without, what would that be and why? Um... One wine that I couldn't live without. Uh, I'm not going to give you any cheesy answers like Bear Green, <laughs> Bear Green Winery wines. Um, I think it might be Riesling. Mm. Uh, I always come back to Riesling and uh, when it has some serious age behind it, it could be from Austria, it could be from Germany, it could be from Australia. Um, there are some cracking examples that I, I just love the purity and the delicacy, the length. It would be, it would probably be Riesling um but ask me on another day and it'll be a different answer so <laughs> well Jimmy thank you so much um for talking us through your English wine journey um it's been a fantastic listen and um good luck with the spring launches and the rest of Bear Green Winery's journey uh, it's been lovely to speak to you thank you very much that was Jimmy Smith founder of West London Wine School Wine with Jimmy and Bear Green Winery, which is situated on the Surrey-Sussex border and is very much pushing boundaries when it comes to the styles of wine we can successfully produce here in England. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the English Wine Diaries, kindly sponsored by Wickham Wines. If you enjoyed it, I'd love it if you'd like and subscribe and leave a rating as it helps other people find us. 
You can catch up with more English wine news over on my Instagram. Just search for English Wine Diaries. And don't forget to tune in next week when I'll be back with a winemaker from the West Country. Until then, cheers. Cheers.